And welcome in to the uh, very first podcast, the very first episode of Political Beats, presentation of National Review. What are we doing here? We're talking to those who are working in, who are covering, who are commenting on politics, but not about politics at all. We're talking about their musical passions, their musical obsessions, and why they love what they love. My name is Scott Bertram, and uh, I'll bring in my co-host, Jeff Blair. Hi, uh, yeah, my name is Jeff. Jeff Blair, you probably know me, if you know me, from the Ace of Space, or rather from the Decision Desk HQ. You may see me on Twitter. Uh, you may hear my political commentary. I also write pieces for uh, places like the New York Post and the National Review. And curiously, uh, what I try to write about most these days when I write stuff is music, because despite the fact that I do a lot of election prognostication, elections data analysis, and things like that, my real love is music, and especially in you know times where the political news is so fraught and can be quite messy. There's there's really nothing that gives me more pleasure than remembering the things that that bring me real joy in life. Uh, which for me is you know, rock music and uh, pop music of all shapes, sizes, and forms, basically running the entire gamut from the 1960s right to the present day. So it's a really fun idea for us to be able to talk to people about something that for once isn't the regular drudgery of the political cycle that we're all seem to be trapped in these days. But the, the good news is, Jeff, that people have uh, just as heated opinions and takes on music as they do on politics. So it's, it's and going it's to be... so much more fun to bash someone <laughs> over the head for their wrong opinion when it comes to music. That's right. That's right. And uh, you heard a little bit about Jeff. My name is Scott Bertram. As I said, I uh, spent uh, uh, a long time up in uh, Rockford, Illinois, as a uh, morning co-host at a uh, political talk show, program director for that radio station as well. Worked for a while in Chicago for a uh, sports radio station there. Uh, currently, I'm up at, at Hillsdale College, actually, as the general manager of the student radio station up here. And I've been up here for about 18 months. It's uh, it's an hour away from everything. That's why I, people say, where's Hillsdale? It's an hour from Fort Wayne. It's an hour from Toledo. It's an hour from Lansing. It's an hour from Battle Creek. It's an hour from everything, but it's, uh, it's a gem. Nothing much to do except listen to music. That's right. We have a Walmart and a Kroger, and we do have an independent music store downtown Hillsdale, too, which is, uh, which is a nice place to visit. So that's a little about Jeff. That's a little about me. And now we bring in our very first guest. Uh, he is Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics. You can find him at realclearpolitics.com. You can find him on Twitter, at Sean Trendy. And uh, he has been one of the best uh, writers on politics going back many years now with his work at Real Clear Politics. He is Sean Trendy. Sean, how are you? Doing great, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And i got to say, you can't always go to Jackson uh, from Hillsdale. That's not so bad. No, Jackson's only about 45 minutes in a town of about 30,000 or so. So, yeah, they've got Kohl's up there and Toys R Us and, you know, the, the stores like that. So that's not too bad. It's not too bad of a drive. And the state's first state prison. First state prison was in Jackson? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it's uh, old, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope not to be visiting that anytime soon. <laughs> it's actually one of my life goals. I, it's, it's written somewhere, not to spend a day or night in prison or jail. So uh, I hope to keep that going up here. Uh, so, Sean Trendy, we invite you on Political Beats. And before we get to your band and your musical passion... Uh, we want to ask you about your day job. So what is your political beat? What do you do? Yeah, so I, I'm the senior elections analyst for Real Clear Politics. So obviously uh, I'm in charge of uh, you know, following the polls, following the elections news, trying to, 
put what's going on in a context to give people a sense of how elections will go. These days, it's not entirely clear what I do, um, because no one cares about elections right now. Uh, it, it's really, I was, I was joking with David Byler, who also who works uh, with me at Real Clear Politics, that uh, I keep thinking I'm going to write a nice big picture piece about Trump's job approval over the House, and then inevitably something big just blows up, and I know the piece would get, uh, would get buried. So it is, uh, I think uh, Jeff used the term fraught political times. Uh, it, it really, it, it's, it's something else. So I'm glad to be talking about music. <laughs> Uh, and so now we introduce your your band, your, your passion, and I'll do it this way. We are talking about a uh, a band that has sold uh, 56 million albums in the U.S. It's a band that had uh, four straight number one albums at the top of the charts, 11 consecutive top ten albums, one of only a few bands in um, uh, U.S. music history to sell, have two albums selling more than 10 million copies. They have two diamond records on their wall somewhere. One number one song in their history. They are, in fact, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members. And if you haven't figured it out by now, we are talking about Van Halen, Sean Trendy's political beat. Oh, I'm so excited to be talking about this band. <laughs> uh, it, it, it probably probably defined my 8th, ninth, and 10th grade years um, and, and really uh, kind of defined where my musical tastes went over the next probably 10 years so this is great what got you into the band why do you like them what what, what, what about van halen was attractive to you so in eighth grade uh my sister actually we went to visit my aunt and uncle's house my great aunt and uncle and they had this old beat up guitar and they knew acoustic guitar and they knew I wanted to play it, so they offered it to me, and being a snotty little 13-year-old, I looked at it, and it was all beaten up, and I said no. Um, my sister said she'd take it, so she took it, and of course, I instantly began playing it uh, and kind of took it away from her, but I kind of had gotten a sense for what a guitar could do, but I was on our eighth-grade field trip uh, to the Houston Space Center, uh-huh. and I'll, I'll just never forget uh, Ken McClintock had an older brother, and he said, Sean, if you like guitar, you have to hear this. And he popped in. It was actually not what you expect. It was Van Halen 2 um, with the song Spanish Fly, which I guess you can think of as the acoustic version of the more famous eruption. My jaw just hit the floor because I had never even conceived uh, that a guitar could do this. So I instantly began diving into uh, their discography and just blown away uh, by the musicianship of Eddie Van Halen. Uh, as I've grown older, I've actually, it's one of those rare cases where as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate. Uh, what a musician he is and what a guitarist he is even more mm-hmm. um, now that I kind of have right. some context to place him in. You know, I think it's funny to talk about when you first encountered a band. Uh, for me, Van Halen was one of those groups that, um, you know, I didn't know who Van Halen was. I didn't know who any of these people were until uh, I sat down with my dad to watch a tape that he made of old music videos. My dad was in the habit of like, you know, this is 
we didn't have MTV, we didn't have cable at the time. What we had is, you know, my dad would tape late night music videos, and we'd mm-hmm. sit down and watch them, kind of bonding time. And uh, the song that came on that caught my attention uh, was not a song by Van Halen at all. It was a song by a very popular dude named Michael Jackson. And I was like, hey, what is this? This is a really cool song. All these guys dancing in the street like it's a gang war. Dad said, like, oh, that's Beat It, Jeff. I'm like, oh, that's a great song. This is, must have been 1985. I was five years old. And then I said, there's this really awesome guitar solo in the middle of it. And I was like, who's that? What's that? And my dad was like, that's Eddie Van Halen. I'm like, who's Eddie Van Halen? And then the very next song on the videotape that we had there was Jump. <laughs> and that caught my oh. attention. Watching David Lee Roth prance around like a maniac on a soundstage with the keyboards and everything blasting and like, you know, the jump cuts and the slow motion. It was basically the most 80s experience that you could imagine. And from that (laughs) moment on, I was like, all right, I'm into Van Halen. This is a really great band. And I had no idea at the time when I watched that it was actually going to be the end of the sort of David Lee Roth era of the band. But talk about a way to get your attention in the best possible fashion. Yeah, I don't think anyone realize that that was the end of the David Lee Roth era. I mean, that's kind of one of the most fascinating things about Van Halen to me is that they imploded, literally. I mean, there's only, most bands have at least a period of decline when they implode. Um, there's only a handful, like Jane's Addiction implodes right after Ritual de la Habitual, right? Um, Van Halen implodes right after 1984. What's interesting about Van Halen is that they actually have a fairly successful resurrection afterwards. I'm sure we'll get to the Van Hagar era uh, later in the podcast, but uh, that that 1984 break really is like kind of musically significant. They didn't even score their first number one album until after David Lee Roth left the band, which I find to be just one of those hilarious ironies. It was the Sammy Hagar era that <laughs> the commercial <laughs> giants that they are. And you know, the, uh, another band that went out right at the peak with the the Police, the Police after. Yeah. Uh, their their big album. I remember my dad had Synchronicity. Yeah, yeah synchro- my dad had Synchronicity on vinyl, and my dad had Heartbeat City by the Cars on vinyl. And I listened to both of them, and I, I distinctly remember asking my dad, "Why aren't Why aren't there any more albums from these bands? Right? Why, why aren't there any more Police albums? Why he didn't buy Door to Door from the Cars? So uh, why aren't there any more Cars albums? And well, they broke up. I'm like, but they were so good. Why did they break up? Um, and I guess in Van Halen's case, they were so good. Why did they break up? Um, there's this tension between David Lee Roth and, and Eddie Van Halen that had gone back some years. I mean, Diver Down is, I think, almost half covers. And it, it, the story go, I mean, goes is that they were so conflicted as to whether to move into the synthy Eddie Van Halen where he wanted to take jump and where David Lee Roth wanted to stay a little hard. And so they compromised with all these covers on Diver Down. You know, it's funny actually, that that... Oh, go ahead. No, no, actually, you go first, Sean. Yeah, it, it's fun. I was just going to say, it's funny that that was the division, because, of course, David Lee Roth, who wanted to be the Hard Rockers, then starts recording these solo albums <laughs> of show tunes. Right? He covers California Girl, he covers Just a Gigolo. And just I'm a like, Gigolo! Yeah. <laughs> I still remember that, that music video. is one of my oh childhood my memories. You could never make those videos today, but uh, um, anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's just ironic that that's, kind of the, the reason that they split up. I mean, talking about these tensions between them, it's probably a good way good sort of way to segue into, like, just starting with this group. I mean, you have the David Lee Roth era, and, you know, he becomes, they really become kind of famous nationally in 1984 at the end. But they had such a long history prior to that. I think, I think 1984 was, like, their sixth album, I believe, something like that. Um, 
it really actually begins back in 1978 with their first album, which is, in my opinion, still their best album. The, just the self-titled album, Van Halen. That's the one that's got Running With The Devil on it. It's got Ain't Talking About Love, which I think may be, my, if not my favorite Van Halen song, it's probably my second favorite Van Halen song. It's the perfect combination of just like rock-headed jock stupidity and awesome <laughs> guitar. That's exactly what I want out of my Van Halen songs. I just want something that's like genially dumb but not so dumb that it makes me groan, which I guess we may have to get to a little later when we talk yes. about Sammy Hagar. And then it has Eruption. It has Eruption, which is one of the most uh, fantastic guitar solos that I think has probably ever been recorded on wax. Um, yeah. So I don't know what you guys think of the first album, but I mean, I think it's as good a place to start as any, not only because it's the beginning, but because I think you could argue it's the best. Yeah, you can definitely make a case for one. I mean, just that, that introduction, like the way they introduce themselves to the world with like uh, on running with the devil the train comes by you get that like done 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 you know the bass line that random piano and then just the guitar comes in and it's just like wow what a way to announce yourself then you go from that into eruption and then break into i mean i, I know Jay Cost will throw me from a roof if he hears it. I think their version of You Really Got Me is better than the Kinks version. Yes, it is. Um, I was about to say that. It's a much better version, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, may maybe not like that weird, like, jungle sounds break in the middle of it, but uh, but it, yeah, it's a great version. And, and then, for me, I'm the one was yeah. the song. So yeah. I bought two, and then I bought one mm -hmm. um, afterwards. And then I think I got 5150, but because um, we're talking like 1987. But I'm the one, just the guitar work on that, uh, it just blows your mind. It has these two guitar solos um, right. that, I mean, I think are, you know, technically impossible to play. I do have to throw in, the interesting thing about Eruption is that the second half, the kind of famous tapping part, is actually much easier to play than the first half. Um, I picked up the tapping, tapping half within like a year of playing guitar, but it took like four or five years before I could tackle that first part. <laughs> uh, it's Political you know, Beats uh, here, a production of National Review. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Our guest is Sean Trendy, a senior elections analyst at Real Clear Politics. Find him at realclearpolitics.com, at Sean Trendy on Twitter. And we're talking about uh, his musical obsession, Van Halen. I will just, uh, I guess, third the notion that uh, the first Van Halen album is almost certainly the best Van Halen album. Sean Stole My Thunder, I'm the One, is a fantastic song. I, I dig Feel Your Love Tonight from the second side as well. Um, and I assume my problem with the second side of that album is it's such those first five songs, the first half of that Van Halen debut album, it's perfect. You got five songs, not a one of them is less than a Stone Cold classic. And then that second half just kind of, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, okay, Feel Your Love Tonight is good, but beyond that, maybe Jamie's Crying is the only other one I really care for. You're not an Ice Cream Man fan, right? No, I'm not. That's going to be dopey and strange. But I, I assume both of you hopefully have heard the the uh, the isolated vocal track from Running with the Devil <laughs> that's available on YouTube. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It, it, it didn't occur to me until much later just how bad of a, I mean, Dave David Lee Roth is in the running for the best front man of all time, but man, he is not a great vocalist. <laughs> um, 
it really is. You realize, like, he's almost like the, the lead singer of, uh, of uh, the, the Love Shack band. French um, Schneider, B-52s. Yeah, like, yeah. he's almost talking half of the time. <laughs> uh, doing, uh, there's actually a, a musical term for it, but it's like, I get off and nothing gets me down. Sprechstim <laughs> um, is the term. Yes, yes. I knew I could count on you for that. But, uh, but yeah, he, he, uh, but he makes it work. You know, that's, that's the th- crazy thing about him is that I don't know that David Lee Roth would work in any other band beside Van Halen that can produce just this big sound that he kind of, and flamboyancy that he melds with. I mean, you almost need to be just sort of like, you know, it's, it's not like Deep Purple, where like Ian Gillen was, had an incredible voice and had to sing these ridiculously acrobatic lines that, you know, unfortunately there's no way he can sing that anymore because your voice just loses elasticity over time. But David Lee Roth was just like that genial surfer bro from California <laughs> saying, yeah, I get up, but nothing gets me down. You think you got it tough? I've seen the toughest around. It doesn't have to have a melody. It has to have a personality. And that guy had personality in buckets, and that's, that's what made the early Van Halen so wonderful. Before we get to 1984, guys, the uh, didn't reach number one, as Jeff mentioned, and stuck at number two in that weird year of 1984. There were only, I think, five, number, four or five number one albums that whole year, Purple Rain and Sports. There were four of them, and only two of them were actually released <laughs> in 1984. Uh, but the, the, the uh, you know, Van Halen 2, you got Women, Children First, you got Diver Down. One song I wanted to bring up from uh, Diver Down, I think, is uh, Little Guitars. I, I, I'm just such a big fan of Little Guitars. It's got that flamenco kind of intro to it. Uh, and the long, it's a good bed to talk over if you're in radio, by the way. Um, the Little Guitars from Diver Down is one of my favorites from that from the era between the first album and 1984. Yeah, fair warning. Uh, I love that album. Uh, that's where Eddie Van Halen kind of, perfects his brown sound he kind of locked himself in the studio with a bag of cocaine and out came this like really dark angry album but uh but little guitars what he's doing there in that flamenco thing he's not doing the way that a flamenco he's he's trilling with his right hand on the high e um and then the b and then he's actually tapping with his left hand the bass notes uh it's just an insane way to fake uh flamenco (laughs) guitar but it's what he did I, mean, I think so. the, the most interesting thing about Fair Warning, other than the darkness, is isn't that the first album where like you hear synthesizers coming into the mix? Where you hear yeah, like keyboards yeah. being played in a major way? You have that weird... <laughs> Saturday afternoon in the park is weird. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it's... He, he like... He has that dial on his synthesizer that he keeps like making it go deeper and deeper and it <laughs> starts to distort. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's an album where I think they finally gelled and were able to kind of sh- make their musicianship really come together because it has some insane drum work, some insane guitar work. Dave actually sings some stuff. It's the first album that I ever uh, had an f bomb drop while my family was listening to it <laughs> on Center Swing, which uh, created a, a conversation with my dad afterwards about playing it when my, when my little sister was around. <laughs> um, you know, it's weird. It's, it's their least commercially successful album, but uh, I, I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's probably, I, I, we'll, you know, we might talk about rankings later, but it, it's, it makes a strong case for at least top four. I mean, I, I, Van Halen fans that I know always signal to Fair Warning. That's the one that they claim is like the, the really, the, the hugely underrated Dark Horse album. Because you know, everybody likes 1984. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes the, the debut album. 
Um, but Fair Warning is the one they, they claim is the secret masterpiece, probably because it is so, I guess it's the difficult record. It's the one that's a little bit weird, a little bit dark, but it is pretty rewarding after you spend enough time with it. I'm not, I'm not as familiar with, the, with, with Van Halen 2 and Women and Children first, but Fair Warning is one of the ones that I actually spent a lot of time listening to when I was in college, <laughs> and I do like it a lot. Um, I want to slide to to uh, the final album of the David Lee Roth era, 1984, huge number two on the charts, spun off the number one song, Jump. Um, Panama from that album, A, I think is one of the best rock songs ever to just crank to 11 in the car. And I think it is perhaps the most Van Halen, Van Halen song. You have this this primal beat from Alex Van Halen. Uh, you have this screeching guitar coming from... from uh, from Eddie, you have David Lee Roth at his most David Lee Roth, you know, in character in this song. You have that 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 bridge in the middle where you could lean the seat back. I mean, it's <laughs> to me the most Van Halen Van Halen song from that first era. Yeah, it, it's my favorite song from that album. I, I, 1984 is a great album. I think the second side of it is actually very important and underrated, but. The, the, the pop songs from it, the, the famous ones, Hot for Teacher, Panama, and Jump, are just all um, amazing. But Panama, yeah, it, it's one of those songs that, like, it really doesn't make much sense. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, it still works. Like, you, you just kind of tune out the lyrics except for that uh, the, the, the bridge <laughs> in the middle, which is kind of funny. Yeah. But uh, it's just, it just works, and it's my overwhelming memory of Panama, the first time it came to my consciousness, and this just goes to show you how tasteless we were in America back in like <laughs> the, the the late '80s, was when we were toppling Noriega in <laughs> Panama. Like all the radio stations around where I grew up were playing Panama, Panama. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't know why you're doing it. I think it was just an excuse to get some good drive time jams in. But like that was again, you know, it's funny how you first encounter these songs. I agree uh, that it's it's the best rock song on the album, unless you consider Jump to be a rock song. Jump is a pop song, and I gotta say, is um, you know, is a front writer as it is, nothing to admit, that's the best song that Van Halen has ever written. It's the best song they ever did, and of course, the the thing that makes the difference is the introduction of the synthesizers. I say this in the best way possible, and I know this is gonna sound like an insult to you. But that sounds like a classic Genesis pop song from the mid '80s. <laughs> Has every hallmark. You've got like the sort of angular guitar, you know, with the Eddie Van Halen guitar, but it's also something you could hear played by like Mike Rutherford or some prog rock guy. And then you have the synthesizers, which are like complex. Actually, he's playing some fairly complex arpeggios there in the middle section, but it's also really rock simple, and it's just got a hook a mile wide. Yeah. Mile wide. That opening hook is probably one of the most 80s sounds in the entire decade. It just absolutely <laughs> sums up a year, a style, a big stadium friendly, everybody get up and dance kind of a thing. And I guess I'd have to argue that if you don't like that song, I probably don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do want to real quickly, just, uh, the second half of that album doesn't get a lot of attention. Songs like I'll Wait and Girl Gone Bad, uh, Huss of Pain. But like, it's actually kind of a glimpse of what could have been. Mm -hmm. 
to my mind in that band. Like Eddie Van Halen has been listening to a lot of Alan Holdsworth, who's this jazz fusion guitarist, and you can really hear it coming out on his guitar solos, especially at the end, which are frequently like don't have much to do with the song, quite frankly, <laughs> but they somehow work. You can tell he's playing jazz fusion over rock. <laughs> Um, and it's one of those, like, what could have happened, like, if the band had, had stayed together, um, might they have been able to go down that road? I don't know, um, but I, I love those songs. I'll Wait is one of my favorites off that album, too, absolutely. Uh, oh, I find that song to be, I don't know. <laughs> I, any, you know, you can just tell it was written with the guy who used to be in the Doobie Brothers. It just has that. <laughs> It just has that vibe to it, you know, and then, I don't know, it's not terrible, but it, it's not the side of Van Halen that I care to hear or care to listen to, which actually is, uh, you know, talking, though, about Eddie Van Halen's guitar obsessions is probably a pretty good way to segue to uh, another question that yes. I think you have to ask, is uh, where does Eddie himself rank in the pantheon of guitar players? Where do you put him, Sean? Oh, I think he's one of the greatest guitar players ever. Um, you know, I Who's better than him? I think so. Like in terms of technical proficiency, you can probably find faster players. Um, but in terms of just influencing the instrument um, and the way people played and, and thought about music, you could put you would have to put Hendrix on top of him. I think um, just because like he did things no one had ever thought of mm -hmm. and influenced you know ten years of guitar music. And I think Eddie's kind of in that same genre, like. Eddie is act. What's interesting about Eddie's—I uh, call him Eddie, like I know him. But <laughs> everyone calls him Eddie. Um, Eddie Eddie's guitar work is that you know it's very blue. It's it's actually minor pentatonic stuff, right? It's still the same old blues stuff mm -hmm. with the classical stuff mixed in, um, and that kind of puts him on uh, as a as a dividing guitarist between uh, the the blues guitarist the fast blues guitarists of, of the of the seventies, right? Like even Tommy Iommi and Black Sabbath is still playing minor pentatonic guitar solos. And then the eighties you start to get the speed classical stuff, thing, Ve Malmsteens and and that genre. And so Eddie's kind of a bridge there and he influences everyone. Obviously the tapping, the popularizing of two hand tapping, uh, and the volume swells that he does on Cathedral, um, are all innovative. So I, I, I think he's just profoundly influential and Top three, clearly. And how about you, Scott? Are you... Are you up I, you know, there as high as he is? I, uh, I'm, I'm not quite as high. I got in trouble one time with a Van Halen fan because we were talking about where Eddie ranks among guitarists, and I, I didn't really mean this as a total slag, but it, it came up. There's a, technically, he is just, he's outstanding, and there's no doubt, but there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a feel to his solo sometimes that the phrase I used at the, at the time, and I guess I'll stand by it, his solos can feel a little soulless to me. And so when I think about great guitarists who I want to listen to play solos, I don't always put Eddie right at the top. Um, and, and it's mainly because, it's like almost because of his technical proficiency that he's so good at it that it, it lacks some feeling at times for me when I hear his solos. So that's kind of the, the criticism I'd, I'd have of, 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 of Eddie. 
So for me, when it comes to these things, my tastes in guitar are probably a little different than both of yours. Uh, I'm a prog guy, I think. It's one of those things that you discover about yourself <laughs> in college. It's like, you know, I had, I had to kind of admit it to myself. It was, it was a process of sort of coming out of the closet <laughs> and recognizing how deeply I was attached to the sort of progressive guitarist. So my ideal is a guy like Robert Fripp. Who has you know the, the technical chops, but can you know play like the universe is weeping at the same time? Can do very dissonant and discordant stuff. Um, what I like about Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen as a guitarist, isn't so much the solos that he plays. You, you talk about um, you know his guitar solos sometimes sounding a bit soulless. I get that, it, but I think it has less to do with the notes that he's playing. I actually think he's, he's very good musically than it does with his sound. I think mm -hmm. the most influential thing about Eddie Van Halen isn't his chops or the way he, he actually puts together his solos. It is the tone that he has on his guitar. The Van Halen guitar tone is one of the most influential guitar tones in you know, the last 40 years of rock music. It basically went on to define, in my opinion, or at least heavily influenced, the sound of you know, like heavy metal, hair metal, mm -hmm. speed metal. Um, and not only in sort of like we, we think of as these unfashionable genres, like you know, who cares about White Snake and all that. Um, <laughs> Guns N' Roses, oh, they're huge debt. Yes. Slash's yeah. guitar sound is basically Van Halen's guitar sound. But it isn't even just those people. It's uh, a lot of the very kind of hip, critically adored 80s bands, uh, sort of post-punk bands. This is actually my area that I really, really have a love for. Bands like the Minutemen um, and uh, especially Husker Du. Mm -hmm. uh, Husker Du is a, the very famous, uh, well-loved and well-regarded Minneapolis indie rock band. Um, Bob Mould, who is the guitarist and lead singer-songwriter for Husker Du, his entire guitar sound might as well have been taken off of Van Halen's first album. And it is a direct sonic copy of it. And played in, in Husker Du played you know, kind of like speed metal. And then they sort of mellowed out over time and became much more sort of thoughtful singer-songwriter types. But uh, that guitar tone, that just shredding and metallic, almost icy, um, you know, very clinical mm -hmm. uh, approach that Van Halen brought to the guitar uh, was just, just almost underrated because people talk about Van Halen's chops as, you know, a performer and a player. And, of course, that those are non-pareil. But I think they don't talk nearly enough about how he basically altered the topography of the guitar playing scene for the next, I don't know, at least 20 years. And um, he needs to get more credit for that than he deserves, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think... Like, so, like, there's a bunch of different things you can like about guitarists, right? Like, you, you can listen... Like, David Gilmore doesn't, doesn't really blow your socks off with chops, but his feel is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, Ugh, disagree. <laughs> Strong disagree. Uh, I, 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 I love... I, I can listen to David guitar, Gilmore guitar for a long time. But, but what makes... Why, why I put Eddie Van Halen so high is kind of what Jeff was just getting at, that, and why I kept emphasizing that he's like a bridge player. Because if you learn to play the, the Eddie Van Halen discography, like you've learned how to play actually some jazz, because you've learned the Alan Holdsworth stuff off mm -hmm. of the end of uh, 1984. You've learned how to do a lot, almost all the 80s like bands, like Night Ranger you can do. You can do a lot of the, the shred stuff that comes out later, like from Metallica and bands like that. And, and you can play blues, because so much of his stuff is blues-based. Um, there, and there's, there's stuff, 
I don't even think like Eruption and Spanish Fly are what define his guitar work. I think stuff like the end of So This Is Love, mm-hmm. where he's kind of trading licks with David Lee Roth's vocals on, on this minor pentatonic stuff, it is just, it's really well-crafted uh, guitar work for the overall work of the sound. And so that, that's why I, I put him so high, because he's incredibly versatile and just influences across a wide uh, array of guitar sounds. This is Political Beats, presentation of National Review. I'm Scott Bertram. Uh, he's Jeff Blair. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. He's at Esoteric CD. And our guest is Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics, Real, RealClearPolitics.com. We would love it if you subscribe to the feed for new episodes of Political Beats through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And we're talking about Van Halen. Transition to uh, Van Halen Mach 2. Uh, Sammy Hagar comes aboard after David Lee Roth leaves the band, former Montrose lead singer, uh, solo success in his own right with uh, I Can't Drive 55, Your Love is Driving Me Crazy, and There's Only One Way to Rock. Uh, Sammy comes aboard, and you have this um, this kind of throwdown between uh, the next album, 5150, and David Lee Roth's solo uh, uh, debut, Eat em and Smile. Um, and I think many would say that, it, well, let's, let's put it this. commercially, commercially, Van Halen wins, right? Sammy yeah. wins, no doubt about that. They sold, I think, five or six million copies of 5150. Yeah. There's, I mean, David Lee Roth goes out and he gets himself another just, I mean, Steve Vai is like another holy cow guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you want to talk about great guitar albums, Flexable, uh, also very weird guitar albums. Um, that's Steve Vai's solo album before he ties, uh, winds up with Ross. But Eat em and Smile just wasn't, you know, like there's a couple of memorable songs. He had very funny music videos that, again, you could never, ever make never. today. Never, no. Um, <laughs> but 5150 is a really good album. Uh, it's one of those things where, like, Hagar comes in and, and just works at the beginning uh, with the sound that the band that now it's Eddie's band, right? And so he's for, for whatever reason he just works with whatever what the sound Eddie's trying to do. I don't know if it's because he plays rhythm guitar and so he he frees Eddie up to do more keyboard stuff and do his lead stuff like without messing with overdubs, which Eddie always hated. Um, but uh, he actually he, he could actually sing. I don't think he could write lyrics, but he could actually <laughs> sing. Um, and that 5150 album, it has some cheeseball keyboard stuff I don't much care for, mm-hmm. other than, like, good memories of eighth grade um, <laughs> and ninth grade. But, uh, but it has some amazing guitar work, too. and some, some, I'll, I'll, I'll make a case for, like, the song 5150 or Summer Night. Wow! I mean, listen, I, I, I have to say that despite the fact that the Sammy Hagar era of Van Halen was sort of one of the soundtracks to my 7th and 8th grade life uh, because of the For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album, <laughs> I am, uh, yeah, and, and the, as I like to refer to it, the, the Diet Crystal Pepsi theme song, which is right now. <laughs> Anybody remember that was always used to sell Diet Crystal Pepsi? Yep. Uh, 
Does anybody uh, even remember Diet Crystal Pepsi? So that's I, I think I suppressed those memories. I actually have Crystal yeah. Pepsi in my fridge right now. They brought it back, and I, I liked it um, when it was out, and so I have some right now. Well, I am not a fan of the Hagar <laughs> era of Van Halen. I kind of like right now. I have to admit it. It's such a cheese ball song, but there's something about the piano that still, I guess, perhaps it brings back nostalgic memories or something like that. But I think, I think the most telling anecdote uh, about the uh, entire transition from David Lee Roth Van Halen to Sammy Hagar Van Halen uh, was captured by a band that didn't even intend to do it, which is the Minutemen, one of my favorite groups from the 80s, one of my favorite groups of all time, actually, who are, again, a classic post-punk band, hugely influential, kind of a math rock, uh, you know, hard rock kind of a group. Uh, they released a classic called, probably one of the most well-regarded indie albums of the 1980s, called Double Nickels on the Dime. And uh, this is in 1984. And the uh, album uh, included a tribute to Van Halen. They did a cover of Ain't Talking About Love on it. A great version. Very kind of like, again, scrappy live, post-punk sort of a thing. But they, they did a great job with it. So they have the Van Halen tribute on the album. But the irony is that even as they paid tribute to Van Halen era, David, you know, David Lee Roth era of Van Halen, the name of the album is an insult against Sammy Hagar. <laughs> this is... Three years before Sammy Hagar actually joined Van Halen. <laughs> but on the actual, the reason the album is called Double Nickels on the Dime is it's a direct response to what they thought was the insulting, you know, cock rock idiocy of I can't drive 55. You know, <laughs> oh, look at me. I'm such a bad, tough hombre. I'm a, I'm a lawbreaker. I can't drive 55 miles per hour on the highway. Aren't I a badass? And so. Minutemen's response to that was to say, well, look at it. We, are, we actually are taking chances. We are taking very big musical chances, and we are a very different band, but we are happy to drive 55 miles an hour. So that's <laughs> why they called it double nickels on the dime, which is to say 55 miles per, per hour on the I-10 in California at the Santa Monica yeah. Freeway, which is, <laughs> you know, goes from Los Angeles out into San Bernardino County. So I just, I just thought, well, did they know? Did they have some sort of prescient understanding <laughs> of what would happen? That on the same album, they pay tribute to Van Halen. They make fun of the guy who would take David Lee Ross' place in Van Halen. And that basically sums up everything that bugs me about Sammy Hagar era Van Halen. Like, the lyrics were never the strong suit of a Van Halen song. Let's, let's not get ourselves too tied up in this. Obviously, it's dumb, good-time music with a few clever jokes and a little bit of winking self-parody. That's actually kind of a, a really good space to be at, especially if you're a hard rock band. But then there's a point at which the lyrics just become too stupid to bear. And I feel like we may have crossed that line when it comes to OU812 and yeah. Sammy Hagar. So, so the thing about Van Hagar is that, like, I think 5150 is a, is a very good album. Like, I, I think it belongs in the Pantheon. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, every subsequent album is worse yes. than the last one. By multiple um, factors, I think. Yeah. Like, OU812, and, and it is, like, like, I, this is a true story. Like, Summer Nights, which is a fun song that, like, it, it, it's like a good song to listen to in the summertime. You're mm -hmm. sitting out and you're, you know, drinking a beer. While, you know, it's, it's a nice night. Like, Summer Nights is a fun song to listen to. Sammy Hagar improvised that entire song during his audition with Van Halen. <laughs> like, that's impressive. But, like, then we get into, like, OU812, and I think, you know, like, 
the sense of parody, like, you know, Panama, the break, where he's like, I reach down between my legs, and you're like, oh, boy, things are getting nasty, and they can ease the seat back, and you're like, oh, we're back to driving. Um, But here we have, like, black and blue, Mm -hmm. and, you know, love is a source of infection, and it's just like you know this this isn't clever anymore. Like you're just you're just like and Sammy. Sammy says, well, I got I got. I think Sammy Hagar is probably the worst lyricist in rock history, if not one, <laughs> like in the top three. And so, uh, Black and Blue. Sammy says, Sammy says that's a true story. That he was he was he was bruised in a very private area. He could not perform for a week on the 5150 tour and that's why he wrote black and blue right that's that's like how sammy thought about lyrics um <laughs> was is it um uh, why can't this be love only time will tell if we stand the test of time right that's a sammy lyric um, <laughs> i'm sorry i yeah. had forgotten about that that's yeah. one of the greatest and then there's, horrible lyrics there's a a song on balance called amsterdam and sammy's chorus is wham bam amsterdam Yep. Um, yep. And then uh, when they when they finally exploded or imploded, it was around doing the Twister soundtrack. They did two songs for Twister, and Sammy disputes this, but the story goes that basically uh, Eddie gave him the music, and he said, "Whatever you do, don't write about tornadoes." And uh, he, Sammy called back and said, "Are you sure?" And Eddie said, "Whatever you do, you know they don't want you to write about tornadoes." And I guess Sammy's original lyrics for Humans Being came back, and it was about tornadoes and wind <laughs> and black skies and all this stuff. And it was like, what do you do? Sammy Hagar, and even go back to, you know, his... You had one job. I had one you job. You had one job. Don't write about tornadoes. Yeah. Um, but, and, and, and they got, wor- again, progressively worse. I mean, 5150, I'm, I'm a little more toward Sean here. I think 5150 can, can stand in the Van Halen canon proudly. Everything after that gets progressively worse, yeah. and Sammy's contributions get progressively worse, and the songs yeah. get more boring and dumb uh, until you get down to, to to balance the final album. But man, Sammy's lyrics are terrible, terrible. Yeah, we're going from like summer nights and best of both worlds, <laughs> which are pretty good. We get to OU812, and like mine, all mine actually has kind of a clever, somewhat it seemed in eighth grade. Like you've got Allah in the east, you've got <laughs> Jesus in the west. Christ, what's a man to do? Like, okay, that's kind of clever. Cabo Wabo, very good song um, off of OU812. But then you get to, you know, the F-Bomb album, and it starts with Pound Cake. And you're like, he actually writes the lyrics, I just love my baby's pound cake. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? I mean, there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing good on that album uh, except for 316, which is mm-hmm. the, the song Eddie wrote for his son, that he would, his, the lullaby for him. Oh come on! You don't think you don't have a secret place in your heart for right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know. You know what? My this is this is. I rode crew in college, and this came out when I was in college. And the women's crew team, every time, like before every workout and before every race, they that was their like get hyped music <laughs> right now. And I was just so sick of that by the end of I guess my sophomore year. I I, I cannot detach it anymore. Um, I, I can see how it might have appeal um, if you didn't have those painful memories. Well, what I love most about right now is that it was Sammy Hagar's attempt to write a serious song about political issues. <laughs> and I was like, boy, you know, you really nailed it there.
so obviously also like taken. I, I feel like they were clearly listening to Jesus Jones is right here, right yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great, actually, a great song about mm-hmm. the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism that does do that, pulls it off in a way that it makes it still sound pretty timeless, except for the awful guitar solo in the middle of it. But um, that was Sammy Hagar's. What'd you say? That Jesus Jones album is actually a very good album. Doubt um, I, you know, I bought it from like the Columbia Music Club or whatever it was, the <laughs> one where you buy like fifteen CDs for a penny and then they get you on the hook yeah, for like yeah. nineteen dollars CDs. That was back in you know again the middle school high school era, but I never listened to it, so I, maybe I'm missing something. I should go back and check on. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good album. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, like right now it's just like uh, okay, I, I'm going to club you over the head with the political <laughs> message I'm trying to make, and I'm not going to do it well. Um, uh, but 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 the music at the beginning, like the like the reason that the women's crew team got hyped up was like the build up, the introduction is really good. Right. Like you do kind of get excited as it as it gets going, but it just I can't catch. <laughs> um, can we skip over the rest of the album? Yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, uh, you know we can <laughs> we can slide it. We, I mean, we, we don't we don't want to do a blow by blow coverage of for unlawful carnal knowledge. <laughs> Come on. Uh, we, we have to give balance its proper appreciation, guys. Don't tell me what love can do. Sammy's attempt at writing about, I think, uh, uh, spousal abuse. You don't want to get into that one t- t- too deeply? <laughs> oh, man, he was really stretching himself. you got to give the man credit for trying. Uh, uh, anyone yeah. have thoughts on the Gary Sharon album, the Van Halen 3? I... Uh, 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 not Sean, but uh, uh, Jeff and I were talking a bit uh, in my in my reading about it. It sounds like Van Halen Three was almost an attempt at an Eddie Van Halen solo album. He he played bass on all the tracks except for three. Michael Anthony says he was he was in the studio telling him how he wanted him to play the bass, which is weird after whatever twenty years they'd been in the band together. Um, he actually played drums, I guess, in some tracks instead of Alex on that album. And it's a pretty awful album. Without you, the one signal that did something. I don't mind. I had to play it a lot in college on the radio station. That could be why I at least uh, tolerate it. Um, but the rest of the album is 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 bad. Sales numbers reflected it. Yeah, that, that sounds like Stockholm syndrome to me. Because without you, it's just <laughs> as bad as everything else on the album. You you, you clearly learned to love your captor. I, uh, I yeah. I mean, I think what what you have to understand, like Eddie, I think is a brilliant musician. Eddie Van Halen is brilliant. So brilliant musician but from everything that i've read over him over the years which is a lot like the guy's a lunatic Mm -hmm. um you know just weird (laughs) erratic behavior and stories like he did this interview for guitar for the practicing musician where this like very like you know young excited uh guitar journalist like was interviewing it's just a jerk like yeah someone who his favorite guitarist was now he's like well i don't really listen to anyone these days because it sounds like they're all copying me and the, <laughs> the interviewer is like no really who's your favorite and like you can tell you eddie's just annoyed that he has to be there he's like i like the guitarist for brian adams he plays with a lot of feels <laughs> jerk um and so that that he you know he played bass for hagar's solo album so that's probably where he really picked that up and uh I can totally see him being a guitar freak and like taking over Van Halen three, and maybe that explains a lot of it. I'm also kind of bitter at how Michael Anthony was eventually treated by him. Um, I kind of like Michael Anthony. Didn't they? I, I, I heard Michael Anthony tell the story. Didn't they basically cut him out and then invite him back as a, as a hired gun at, at the end? It's, the, it, it's called the Rick Wright maneuver. Is what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's a, 
Well, I know he's given some interviews since then. He's like, I had to show Michael Anthony every bass yeah. lick that he ever wrote, and like I would videotape my videotape the bass lines for him. And I mean, Michael Anthony had this really like he did all the all the not all the um, harmonies, but he had this like really cool kind of high level harmony song. And Eddie's like, oh, he just has a really hard, like a freakishly high voice. <laughs> well, you know who doesn't? Wolfgang. Okay, so you should give some credit where it's due. Uh, oh yeah, yeah that, that's I, the other thing we don't we don't we haven't pointed out that 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 Michael Anthony was frozen out of the band uh, because Eddie Van Halen was weird and unlikable and you know a crazy Howard Hughes like hermit, yeah. uh, and then eventually replaced with Eddie Van Halen's son uh, because yeah. boy you know there's. Nothing quite like keeping it all entirely within the family. And uh, it kind of proves that at the end of the day, it's, it is a family affair. And whoever the lead vocalist happens to be, and it's been rotating, I guess, ever since the past 15 years or so, is, uh, is just a front. And it, it's really just about whatever Eddie Van Halen feels like doing at this point. Political Beats is a presentation of National Review. Van Halen is the uh, topic. Sean Trendy, our guest, senior elections analyst, Real Clear Politics, realclearpolitics.com. At Sean Trendy on Twitter, I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. We would love it if you subscribe to the feed for new episodes of Political Beats through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. I don't know if we can get through a Van Halen discussion without at least mentioning the, uh, the famous or infamous contract writer that Van Halen had written into their contracts in the 80s people I, I don't know a lot of people some people have heard the brown m&m story the, the contract writer for van halen through the 80s said uh you must provide for us a bowl of m&ms with all the brown ones picked out no brown <laughs> m&ms and it sounds like a diva thing to do which it uh, may have been the explanation that i heard makes more a little more sense which is they put all these writers in the contract they knew if they showed up to a dressing room and they had a bowl of brownless m&ms that the people putting on the venue, right, the promoters, had read the contract and everything else would be taken care of. And if they didn't, they knew they had to be on the watch for things going wrong, things not set up correctly. I, I guess they had some bad incidents early in the career with, you know, electrocutions and, and, and things just going poorly. And so that's why the M&M clause was in the contract. That's at least the way the band explains it. Yeah, and it's actually, it, it was actually, I guess, more than that, which was, the, when, when, I guess, around the time of Fair Warning, um, their shows got so elaborate and started to involve pyrotechnics and also just huge stage set pieces that required like reinforcement um, of the stage because uh, of the weight. Um, there were actually legitimate safety issues involved. Now, who knows? This could all be post hoc rationalization, and they really <laughs> just were like trying to be jerks. Um, but if nothing else, it's a legendary story and a good one. Yeah. I mean, my attitude is this. There, there, there may have been, and in fact, I, I've done, you know, I've read the stories too. It probably was a good explanation for all this, but I don't care. I, I didn't need there to have been a good explanation for this. My thinking is, if you are a rock star, come on. You gotta do at least a few stupid rock star things, diva-like behavior. This is the story of heavy metal in the 80s. This is the Spinal Tap moment. This is exactly what we want a band like this to be doing. Let's be honest. We would have been disappointed if Van Halen didn't have something ridiculously silly like this <laughs> attached to their legend. They had to. It was David Lee Roth. Of course this kind of thing had to be attached to Van Halen. So I'm really, I'm really glad that we have that kind of, you know, like the sort of the, the, the just-so story, the absolutely perfectly, um, 
wonderful embodiment of like you know mid 80s cocaine indulgence in the rock world <laughs> there you go the brown m&m rider i don't even wa- i'm actually disappointed that there was a good safety reason behind <laughs> it. i wish that it had just been them being jerks because hey that's what rock stars get to do <laughs> yeah i i think you know another thing we kind of lose track of with all this and i have a hard time wrapping my mind around but like these guys were 26 years old when they were doing this. Mm-hmm. Like they they were like kids going on tour with you know hundreds of thousands of people showing up on sh- on shows with these like big intricate elaborate stage sets. You know, and of course they have all kinds of drugs and alcohol stuff going on. So it actually makes sense to me to have like something really simple you can check because like you're going to be like too wired to actually go through and, and check things yourself. So just get the bowl of M&M's right, and then, like, I'll go drink <laughs> a bottle of Jack Daniels. Um, and I know everything's cool. Um, what a go get... back to bumping the rails once you see that there are no brown m <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I want to get to kind of final thoughts on Van Halen. I want to start with uh, with Sean, and we kind of present to our to our guests here to, to give us two albums from uh, from Van Halen everyone should own and perhaps five tracks that everyone needs to hear so this was really hard for me um because i think the obvious choices are 1984 and van halen one right but those are also the like choices everyone says um and of course, a music snob always wants to be like, no, I'm going to go for deep cuts. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, I'm tempted to say two and fair warning. Um, go do it, do it. But but I will split the baby uh, for for anyone there who for some reason is interested in getting into Van Halen. Um, I will say get one because it's basically the same album as two. You can view them as continuations. Mm-hmm. Them, but get one and then get fair warning uh, and give it at least three listens. Um, and, and that'll give you a good sense of what the band's about, but you, you probably really need to get 1984 or two. Um, as far as the five tracks, um, you know, Eruption, definitely. I mean, it, it really does define the band and Eddie Van Halen's guitar work. I love I'm the One off of One as well. Um, we talked a little bit about that. I, I think it's, it's some of Eddie's best guitar work, and it's, it's um, it has all these like time changes and like they go into this weird like four part harmony in the middle of it and and when you think about it in terms of musicianship just being able to pull it off uh, is is really impressive I'll say so this is love from Fair Warning mm-hmm. um, Panama from 1984 I, I absolutely agree like this is like just the, a fun party song you know put it on your car and just blast it and then I'll go with 5150 from the album 5150, just because I feel like I need something from the Van Hagar era. <laughs> it's got amazing, it's got really good guitar work on it. It's not one of their synth pop songs. Um, it's one of the, it's, it is one of the songs that really wanted me to learn how to play real rock guitar. <laughs> Jeff, any final thoughts from you? Oh, man. Okay, well, I, I have to give credit 
uh, to uh, Sean for stealing all my answers. So <laughs> thanks for nothing, Sean. Um, uh, his point about you know you want to you want to go for the deep cuts is is a good one. The obvious answer again is the first one, 1984. But fair warning is the one that you know I have to say if you're going to go with anything in the middle era, we, you, you know the best. The best albums are the first one and the last one of the David Lo David Lee Roth era. Fair Warning is right in the middle there. It's a deeply underrated album. It's very dark. It's very strange. Top five songs? Well, I mean, th th this list doesn't include Jump on it. We're all being a little too hipster for our own good. It's Jump. It's just a, a magnificent song. It's one of the great pop songs of the 1980s. It defined an era. There is nothing wrong with it. People who don't like it are bad people. I feel no reason to represent the Van Hagar era, so forget about it. Uh, I will say that the other ones that you would need to have are one of their good covers. I'd probably go with You Really Got Me off the first mm -hmm. album because they did a lot of covers. Go with Ain't Talking About Love off the first album. Panama from 1984, and I actually would have said as well, so this is love, off of Fair Warning, because I think those are the, if you had to say five, why did this band matter, there you go. And if I could get a sixth bonus track, it would probably be Eruption, just because it's a pure guitar chops display that sort of boils everything that Eddie Van Halen did with the guitar down into one pretty brief track. Uh, I'm not going to be as adventurous. I think one and 1984, those, those are the two to grab. You guys took a lot of songs. I, I think Running With The Devil, you know, uh, album one, track one, announcing the presence thusly is an important one to grab. Panama, Jump for sure. As I mentioned earlier, I, I dig little guitars so much. Um, check that one out. And if you're going to pick one Hagar track, I do think Best of Both Worlds from 5150 is about as good as the Hagar era of Van Halen got. So might as well give it a shot, I suppose. Uh, and that'll wrap look it at up. You with your, Go ahead. Look at you trying to get that representative balance in there. <laughs> well, we didn't put any Gary Sharon tracks on. I mean, <laughs> okay. So, okay, we don't care that much about balance, but, <laughs> but, but only right. a little bit. And nothing from the actual album balance either. So we don't. Yeah. We really don't care about balance. <laughs> yes, well done. Uh, that'll wrap up this uh, very first edition of Political Beats, presentation of National Review, where we talk to those working in, covering, commenting on politics, not about politics at all, but about their musical passions and obsessions. And today, we talk with Sean Trendy about Van Halen. Check out Sean, Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics, realclearpolitics.com, at Sean Trendy on Twitter. Sean, thank you for the time and, your, and sharing your Van Halen love. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great trip down memory lane. And yeah, uh, go ahead, Jeff. No, I just wanted to thank you. This is, you know what, for an, an, a maiden voyage, this couldn't have gone much better. <laughs> uh, I would agree. Uh, check out Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. And as I mentioned, you know, Jeff's uh, tweet storms through the, I guess at this point, years, uh, a major inspiration for the idea behind the show. So uh, you can go back in time and see some of those, and we'll talk about some of those bands in the future here as well. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. One T in Scott, one time on the show, I'll tell you why that's the case. S-C-O-T-B-E-R-T-R-A-M. We would love it if you subscribe to the feed for new episodes of Political Beats through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Uh, thank you so much, Sean. Thank you, Jeff. This has been Political Beats. Political Beats.